Uh, the next question comes from the MBT forum. Do all religions exist in all the virtual realities you have visited? Well, do religions exist in the virtual realities? I don't know about, no, well, I do know that. All, all the, all the virtual realities I've visited, no. A lot of the virtual realities do not have strong rule sets. You know, does religion exist in the dream reality? Yeah, you'd probably say no, or not unless we bring it there. You know, it doesn't exist as and of itself. So there's lots of realities uh, that, uh, you know, in the transition reality, no, it doesn't exist there either. So in those kinds of realities, no. But in the ones that are more like our physical universe, the very tight rule sets that everything is defined, everything is defined by the rule set down to the Nat's eyebrow. In those kinds of things, I would say, yes, in some form it exists. Now, does it exist just like here? Um, no, not like here. It wouldn't take the same forms. It wouldn't take the same metaphors. But people, people, we call them people, individuated units of consciousness, no matter what reality they're playing in, have ideas about what the purpose to their life is and why they exist and where did they come from and that sort of thing. And because you have people with who can think big thoughts, then they will think big thoughts. And those big thoughts will often end up with some conclusions and those conclusions may turn into religions. That's just the way it works. So yes, I would say that the, the ones with tight rule sets do. Now, have I really observed religious behavior in other realities, you know, like people going to churches and, and that kind of thing? I'd say, yes, I have, but whether that's all of them or just a few of them, I don't know. I, you know, right now trying to think back over it, I don't think I necessarily observed that in all the realities that it was in, but then I didn't go there looking for that either. And typically when I'm in a reality, it's something that I'm there for some purpose to understand. And that wasn't my purpose was to look at religion. So I wasn't paying much attention. And uh, it's one of those things socially. Just think if somebody popped out of the, you know, some other part of the universe here and uh, they spent a week here and then later they were asked about religions. Well, in a week, they may not have gotten any notice of that. They may not have really turned it into that kind of a context. So it's not like I was born and lived in a lot of these other realities. I just visited them. And as a visitor, I occasionally saw what I would say is definitely were kind of isms of some sort. No, it wasn't Christianity and Judaism and Islam. And, you know, it wasn't the same set we have here. It would have been something of their own creation and their own metaphors. But would the content have been similar? probably the content would have been very similar to answer the big questions of who am I? Why am I here? You know, what's right? What's wrong? What's the purpose of life? Those kinds of things are going to bubble up anywhere. You have a, a universe with a tight rule set like ours. It sounds like they need a big theory of everything also. The next question comes also from the MBT forum users. Why do the mystics in the East say that the sound of the universe and the creation is Om? And that is very similar to the sound of yeah. AUM, Om. 
It is, and that's not a mistake. I just came up with AUM because I thought it would be really, really cool to have OM be the name of the thing. So I did that on purpose. That was my own, uh, yeah. Uh, nobody made me do that. Um, didn't require me to, to give that name. I just thought that would be fun to do that and make that connection. Anyhow, so that's just my uh, sense of humor. So why do uh, people in Eastern religions say that Om is the sound of the universe or a sound of the, you know, or whatever, the, you know, the thing from the great beyond that is most meaningful. I don't have any idea why they'd say something like that. I can only guess, but it's just be a guess of mine. And that is that everywhere, you know, people who study inner consciousness end up in meditation and they have all kinds of ways to get to that meditation. Now I'm defining meditation here. Where's my little quote signs up? There they are. Defining meditation as something very generic. Okay, it's when you lose connection with this physical reality and you, uh, you know, drop your sense data. That's what I'm talking about is meditation. So people who study the inside world, inner space, if it will, they all end up doing that some way or another. And I suspect that early on, they found that sound was helpful because you need to fill your mind up with something in order to keep it from thinking all these thoughts. When you want to meditate, you can just sit down there and do nothing and thoughts come, thoughts come, thoughts come. And they probably came to the conclusion that if they had a sound, which then is now we call it a mantra, right? And it can have very special things and it's Sanskrit things and whatever. And all of that isn't really necessary for a mantra, but, Om, that's as good as any other mantra, and it's simple, and it's just a sound, and that kind of a, a deeper sound was probably helpful in letting them sit there without thoughts in their mind. You know, it was just useful, and because it was useful, and it worked, and they went home and suddenly they got in a deeper space and they, it was easier to let go of the outer world and whatever. They just came to the conclusion that home was somehow the resonant sound of the big universe because it worked like that. Whenever they'd say it, they got more access more quickly to this larger space. And I would guess that they said that because simply it was a fact that they discovered that that opened up the door to their meditations and to their uh, ex exploration of non-physical reality. They probably could have said something else that would have worked just as well, but, you know, you pass that around. Well, how did you know that such and such? Well, here, I'll tell you, go, um, and that'll help you, you know, get in the right state. I think it was just a, an obvious meditation technique that helped them meditate, and they kind of uh, sanctified it. Well, you know, we do that all the time. Stuff that really works good for us, we kind of sanctify it, whatever it is. But uh, we go around giving testimonials about it. So I think it was just a human thing. And that they ended up on OM instead of something else. You know, maybe they could have gone blah. You know, that might have worked too. I don't know. But 
that probably wasn't as pretty to look at. So Ohm was a lot prettier and it probably won the contest. But my, my real answer to the question is I have no idea. That's the only thing I can come up with. I have no idea. But now somebody who's made that word sacred, they'd probably get all upset because I've just kind of trampled all over, you know, their ideology. But, uh, you know, the same goes for mantras. I've made up mantras, just made them up, and they work just as good as the ones that you pay for that are secret Sanskrit words. I don't really find any difference in the in the value between them. So uh, that's my two cents worth. All right. Thank you. Another question from Zerschmetterling on MBT Forum. Um, this is a short question. And she is uh, making a joke of that because mostly her questions are long. And it is about those moments of overwhelming love when you are feeling one with everything. Although I've had many of these moments, suddenly a question rose up. If I'm connected with everything, the whole planet, and it's billions of people, the plants and animals, why am I overwhelmed with love? I mean, shouldn't there be a lot of negative stuff also if you're connected one with everything. <laughs> yeah, connected with all the ugly stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can say om backwards, mo, and it'll connect you with all the evil in the world. I don't know. Be another whole thing to start, wouldn't it? Um, the reason you're connected with love is that what you're doing is not just connecting with things. You, you're not, you know, you, this connecting with things can mean different things. And one of the things connected with somebody, yes, you can taste their food. You know, if you're really connected with them, you can taste what they're chewing. You can feel their feelings. And if they're angry, you can feel their anger. And if what they're tasting is really gross, it will taste really gross to you too. So, you know, you get the good and the bad and the ugly all come together because you're attached to a person's feelings and what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. You can do that, and that's being connected to them. But that's not the same thing that you're doing in these moments of being connected to everything with love. You're not connected in that you're feeling everything's feelings, and uh, you think, well, then why aren't I feeling their pain? That's not what's going on. You're connected to everything in the sense that you realize that you and everything else is really all one from one source. And the reason you feel love is because that's the nature of that source. That's the larger consciousness system that is creating all of this stuff in this virtual reality and animating it all. And when you make that connection, you feel that you're one with everything. But that's not mean, that does not mean that you feel everybody's feelings, everybody's anger and everybody's pain. It just means you're realizing that you are a part of all of it. And that love is the connection that pulls all the pieces together. It's all there, and it's there in love. So you, you get the feeling of the larger consciousness. The system is love. All of its pieces and parts are love. And it becomes overwhelming because it is such a different experience than our normal experience walking around in the waking world where we are mostly self-centered and full of fear and ego and beliefs and then we have this experience and suddenly all that fear and ego and beliefs and all that junk is just gone 
and you have this sense of being one with everything. You're the same as the trees and the grass and the flowers and all the people, and you can see how it all just comes together in love, and it's just an overwhelming experience because of its contrast with our normal experience, and it is a beautiful experience that leaves you feeling different after you've had it. It leaves you feeling fulfilled and full and you understand and it just kind of leaves you very full rather than empty. It's a wonderful experience. And yes, it's not that hard to have that experience. It's a matter of connecting with the larger consciousness system and having a desire to, to experience that oneness with everything. And you can have that experience. It's a terrific experience, but it's not really connecting to everything's sense of its own existence. You're just connecting to the concept, the idea and the truth that we're all part of consciousness and that consciousness runs on love, if you like. It evolves toward becoming love. That's its purpose and its point. Or it de-evolves and dies and disappears and is no longer an information system. So that's that's the system of which you are a part and you experience that system. Not that you're connected to every little thing and all of its feelings and all of its tribulations. So when you're a part of the grass, you don't get annoyed because somebody steps on you. You know, it's not like that. You're part of the grass in the sense that the grass is part of all creation and so are you. Your consciousness. Everything is here because of consciousness. That's how we're all one. We're all one within consciousness. So it's not being connected to people in the same way as you taste what they're chewing. It's a different kind of animal. Another question from the MBT forum. It's on the plausible deniability principle. If your experiments succeed in demonstrating that we are in a virtual reality, would that destroy the plausible deniability principle? No, it doesn't. My experiment, my experiments, like any experiment, isn't going to prove anything other than that the experiment works the way it works. It will lend evidence to the fact that this is a virtual reality. By that meaning is, is that, that this is a virtual reality will be pretty much the only way that you'll be able to explain the results of the experiment. Otherwise, they they just defy a material uh, explanation. And they'll do this more dramatically than just what the normal double slit does. And, and uh, uh, of course, there was the normal double slit that was done, and, and that that flies in the face of materialism. And then there was the um, delayed eraser, which made an even stronger statement about materialism uh, and a more dramatic statement. And now, if my experiments work the way I think they will, it'll make an even more dramatic statement. But all of it is just evidence. It's not, uh, it's not proof. So we work with evidence in science. I think it was Dean Radin who said, proof is for whiskey, evidence is for science. So I don't think there's going to be a conflict there. Uh, we are supposed to wake up here. The system goes to a whole lot of trouble to wake people up, to give them experiences that show them that reality is bigger than just a material world. Yeah. 
hundreds of thousands, millions, probably tens of millions of people have had experiences like this that show them reality is bigger than just the physical world. So it's not really like the system is trying to keep that a secret. It keeps telling people. It keeps telling individuals that. But then the individual has to learn to do something with it. They have to take that, become a seeker, try to figure out how how reality works, and then start the growth process. So they have to do something with it. So what the system doesn't want to do is just basically throw people in over their head that are not able to understand or appreciate something that would not put them in seeker mode to go find out more, uh, would put them in um, user mode of how can I use this information to get what I want. So as people are ready, then they get information to help them along the path. So it's not that the system is against giving people information. But when we get this, if these experiments work, then that will help a whole lot of scientists agree that virtual reality is a good theory. It's a good idea. It explains more physics. So if more scientists do that, the scientists are only going to say, yes, virtual reality seems to work. This does seem to be a computed reality or a, re a reality that's based on information. And the scientists are only going to go that far, and that's all they'll say, and that's all they'll mean. But they will trigger another couple of billion people to say, oh, that's interesting. What you're telling us is that our reality is created by something more fundamental that's non-physical to us. And the physicists will say, whoa, I didn't say that. And they'll say, no, you didn't. But anybody with a little logic can come to that conclusion from what you did say. And that will make a big difference. So we need to understand that this is a virtual reality, that there is something that is non-physical to us in our virtual reality that is more fundamental than we are. Understanding that is part of our path, probably where it's where we need to go. It's where we're going toward. It's not to be kept as a secret. What the system doesn't want to do is to make the virtual reality a bad virtual reality where the rule set is constantly being violated or even not constantly, even ever violated. Otherwise, the rule set isn't depend. I mean, the reality is not dependable. If it's not dependable, then you don't really have consequences. The reason the consequences here are so valuable is because the rule set always holds. Its consequences have to do with us being in this, this virtual reality, the way our reality works. If those things varied, if the consequences were sometimes this way, sometimes the other way, sometimes this, you know, sometimes you can flap your arms and fly and other times it doesn't work. You know, if it was that kind of a reality, it would be really hard to come to conclusions about anything. So it wants the, the virtual reality to be a good virtual reality that doesn't look like it's being computed. It doesn't look like that, that uh, it's virtual. It looks physical and we treat it as such. And to do that, it has to not have weird things going on that violate the rule set. So I'm not violating the rule set with these things. I'm actually showing how the rule set works in a way that points out that this is a virtual reality. 
And that points to the fact that there's something larger that is creating this reality because virtual realities don't just spontaneously create themselves. So that's not a conflict. All right, Tom. Um, Will, Will T has a question on, he is regularly going out of body, but rarely for more than a few minutes. Do you have some suggestions on various techniques that will help uh, sustain that out-of-body state? Well, I can give him some. It would be helpful to know why it is he comes back, what happens at the end of a few minutes that brings him back. <clears throat> that there, there may be several different causes there that would lead me in a different direction. But in general, when one comes back like that uh, very quickly, there's a, a fear involved of the unknown, of what you're getting into. Oh, you're out of body, there you are, and you're floating around, and what's going to happen next? Well, you read, out, you, read other, you read books about out of body, and sometimes it's scary stuff, and sometimes it's not. But the unknown is often scary to people. They're in the unknown, that means they have no control, right? If you dive into water and you can't see anything but the fact that it's water on the surface. You don't know whether it's only an inch deep and you'll break your neck or whether it's very deep or whether there's a, a very swift current to it or no current or whether it's so cold it'll freeze you. If you don't know anything about it, it's a scary thing just to dive into unknown water or what kind of big monster might be lurking in that water waiting for lunch. So you can think of all the horrible things that might happen when things are unknown and that often then will turn into I'm not so sure I want to stay here any longer, which so often turn to going back. That then will be your intent, is to go where it's safe and you end up back in your body. So it could be just a fear. Another thing that happens to people, which is entirely different, is they get very excited. Oh, I'm out of body. Look, I've made it. There's my body. Where am I? Oh, I'm up banging against the ceiling. And they go totally nuts because that's what they've been trying to do. And it's just the most amazing thing. And they get all excited about it. And next thing they know, they're back in their body. Because they went from the being level, out of body, to the intellectual level, thinking about it. Getting excited about it, which is all intellectual. That's another thing that will bring you back. Now, if you're going out a lot, that's probably not the case. You should be used to it by now. But that's another thing that will bring people back rather quickly. Another thing that could be doing it would be that if you're really not ready yet and you have a lot of fear and the system thinks if you get out of body, you're liable to have a bad experience and then end up with more fear, the system may just send you back gently. So you get out and then you find out you're back. I'd say then just keep being persistent. Again, that would be another fear thing. Work on fear and just keep being persistent. And uh, maybe ask for, uh, you know, maybe ask for a little help to stay. Ask the system, you know, can I, you know, I'm really getting, uh, you know, annoyed about having to come back all the time. And I don't think it's me and I'm not intending and I don't feel like I'm frightened. You know, can you help me stay a little longer? What should I do? Well, another thing for them to do would be, and the system may tell them this, is go somewhere. Don't just hang in your bedroom staring at your body. That's kind of boring anyway. Go somewhere. How do you go somewhere? Have an intent. I'll just slide right on up 
through the ceiling and see what's going on in town or any other kind of thing. And if you need something that is more dramatic, make a big circle of light. Just see a big circle of light. Or you can use a light bulb if the light's turned on in your room or even if it isn't. Just pick something and dive in it. Make it a portal. Pick something. It could be the dartboard on your you know, bedroom wall. Just make that into a portal and just dive right through it and see where you end up. You'll end up someplace else. And in that case, your adventure will start. From there, you'll go to someplace else and on and on and on until you end up coming back at the end. So go somewhere. Do something. Have an intent. Don't just have an intent of floating around watching your body sleep. Have an intent to go do something else. Maybe you're coming back just out of boredom of watching yourself sleep. So without knowing really what it is that you think is pulling you back, I'm not, you know, I can't tell you too much, but those are some, some ideas. All right, Tom. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's some fear tests going on here. And that um, out-of-body state, <coughs> which is one type of virtual reality, and the dream reality. He goes on in a second question to talk about a dream reality. He's in a public bathroom. Somebody's watching him. He's feeling uncomfortable, and he's very, very agitated and shouts back at them to back off. Mm -hmm. He realizes right away he has failed the fear test. Mm -hmm. He knows it's a fear, but within this context of that particular dream, he can't think of any way to work on that on that particular well, fear. Well, the way you work on that particular fear is you deal with the experience. The experience was that he was upset. He was very upset. He was um, annoyed. It was uncomfortable. And the way you work with that is you ask why. Why was I so upset? Why was I so uncomfortable? Why did I find that so intolerable that I had to shout? Did you say shout back off? Why did he, uh, you know, why did he feel the need to do that? Was the person bothering him, hurting him, causing him pain, uh, you know, uh, getting in the way or something? And if not, what was the problem? So he needs to say, well, it just wasn't polite. Well, yes, people do things sometimes that aren't polite, but you don't get, you know, you don't have, you don't shout at them necessarily, or you don't, uh, you know, make a big fuss or scream or get upset about it. I mean, we see people doing things that aren't polite all the time, but we don't have that kind of a reaction to it. He had a very emotional, strong emotional reaction to it. To that impoliteness, you know, I suspected if he some, saw somebody across the, the table, you know, at a, at a formal dining experience, picking their nose or something, that would have been impolite too. But he probably wouldn't have, you know, kind of freaked out about it and got upset and hollered at them or anything. He probably just would have looked the other way and waited for it to end and then gone on about his business. So the fact that he had that emotional reaction to it means that he had some deep connection there, some fear that got twanged when that person intruded on his private space. He needs to ask that question. Why? What did I have attached to that that got me so upset? And he will make up probably all kinds of stories first. Well, it was just rude and, you know, I just, you know, but that's not the answer. The answer is why did that rudeness do that? And he'll eventually get to the point that there is a was a fear of some sort, 
there that triggered that. And he needs to deal with, with that. Another thing he should realize is the next time you're in that situation or any other situation where something annoys you, before you melt down and, and uh, you know, holler and whatever, react to it, think about it. What's really going on here? What's the harm? What's the issue? Oh, the issue is somebody being rude. Well, how big an issue is that? Uh, well, not actually a very big issue. It's not really doing anything that's getting in my way or causing me to function or anything. So what should I do about it? Well, probably nothing. Or maybe explain to the person that they're being rude according to your sensibilities. And uh, please don't do that again. But being outraged by it tells you there's a deeper problem. Go work on that problem. And you'll probably get another test next week. All right, Tom. Um, one question from another MBT forum user, Kofmer. Uh, um, is our ability to feel empathy related to past life experiences? As in, can we more easily feel empathy for someone because we've actually experienced it? As in, can we feel more easily empathy for someone because we have actually experienced this feeling in a, or this situation, experienced it in a past life at our being level? Um, also, would that mean someone who is very empathetic most likely has experienced many lives? Does, does past life and being empathetic, in other words, um, have anything to do with uh, each other? Only, yeah, there is a correlation there, but it's not a really a direct correlation. Yes, people who have had more and more experiences are likely to be more evolved because they've been trying longer, you know, and we do succeed slowly. So there is some correlation, but basically, if you've had a, if you can see yourself in somebody else's role, in other words, if there's somebody who's having an issue, and you yourself have had a similar issue, or you can imagine yourself having that issue, then you can be very empathetic. It's easy to be empathetic. So if you have been hungry and didn't know where your next meal would come from and hadn't eaten for four or five days, and uh, if you've had that kind of an experience, when you see a hungry child, you will react to it very differently then if you've always had a house full of food and you've never spent a moment of your life without something nearby that you could eat, yes, if you've had an experience, you will have more empathy for people who are having that experience because you will understand what they're going through because you've been there, done that, and experienced it. But <clears throat> it could be you know, it's not that it's going to come directly from a past life, but just all your past life experiences add up to, you know, lower entropy, higher quality of consciousness. The higher quality of consciousness you have, the easier it is to identify with other people and their issues because you start to feel their feelings, feel the depth of their whatever, their fear, their sadness or whatever else. And then you can have more empathy for them. So in general, just growing up gives you more entropy, more you know, uh, more closely connects you to people and you have more empathy for people because of that. You have more compassion for people as you grow up. 
because you care more about people you grow up. You know, if, it, if you're very self-centered, then you're not too grown up. And if you see some starving orphan someplace, you just kind of you know, shrug that off. Yeah, sad. You know, these things happen. Go on about your business. But if you're more grown up, then you have compassion and you have caring and you can feel with them empathetically. So there's a well, relationship between empathy mm. and being grown up but not necessarily between entropy and past lives, other than the fact that a lot of past lives mean you're probably more grown up. So that's the only connection. Well, you have mentioned that the only thing we carry with us from past lives, not necessarily all the memories and the attachments, but the quality. So right. that would make sense in that, in that uh, regard, that sure. the quality of who you are is with you. And that way you, in that sense, you would react uh, from that. That's a, a little bit of a connection there. The other part of the question that he had was, um, is it possible to increase intelligence through intent? Now, I know you, um, when he's talking about intent, he is um, probably meaning in something in a meditative state. And you have often spoke about how the meditative state can give you answers uh, to things easier than than um, just using the intellect. So, in that sense, how would you ask, answer that question? Can you well, increase it, yeah, intelligence? Yeah, intelligence. It's kind of how you define intelligence. Um, if you define it, you know, as IQ, as measured on an IQ test. Mm -hmm then, you know, you can, you, you know, I've, I've often said this, it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek, a bit of an exaggeration, but it has a little bit of truth in it anyway. And that is, if you stop eating sugar, you can write, you can put about 10 extra points to your IQ, you know? Um, so you can change your, your IQ in a sense that you can get rid of the fog. You can get rid of the stuff that blocks you from thinking clearly. So you can have a better diet and probably raise your IQ as well. Um, IQ is not something that is hardwired to you that, okay, you were born and your IQ was exactly, you know, 115 and that's it. IQ is something that you can, that you can encourage, that you can develop, that uh, can grow with exercise, can diminish without exercise. So it's, it's, I don't see it so much as an innate part of you as I do a measure of your ability and the breadth of your ability and the breadth of your understanding. I see it that way. So in that case, yes, you can, you can uh, change your IQ. At least you'll look smarter in the, in the eyes of others. If you are uh, uh, connected in a larger way to reality, because as Donna mentioned, you'll get information, you'll understand things, you'll understand how people feel. You'll be able to respond more uh, effectively. So you will at least appear to be cleverer and smarter about the things you do. Um, we could probably get 10 people to sit around and argue what that has to do with basic intelligence as, you know, as opposed to uh, learn skills or getting more information. But I don't think that's the point of the, of the question. So people can argue a whole lot, never come to a conclusion about what is intelligence and how do you measure it. But if you look at it from a practical viewpoint, what is intelligence as what is your 
ability and capacity to give, to help, to be part of a, of a, of a, a building process. Then those who can do a lot of that and can be very helpful in giving and caring and, and, uh, help other people, I give them a, you know, a, a higher level of awareness, let's say, if maybe intelligence is kind of a word that people like to argue over. We'll give them more awareness. They have a bigger picture. They see things that other people don't see. They make connections that other people don't make. This makes them appear to be more intelligent. And as a practical matter, it makes them act more intelligent. And I guess uh, you kind of are the way you act. I would say it makes them more intelligent. But then again, I'll probably start an argument with a couple of psychologists about the meaning of that word. So, yes, you can learn a lot just by seeing a bigger picture and and uh, getting in touch with the larger world and not just being wrapped up in yourself. Uh, we have uh, some questions left, but we've gotten most of the questions that we were we were behind on from other times, and we've got a couple of very long questions. And we'll start with some of the MBT questions at the beginning of the next 49th Fireside Chat next month. So thank you, everyone, and I hope to see you back next time. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Justin, and thank you, Tom. Thank everyone. Yes, thanks for coming. Those of you who show up here with little thumbnail pictures of your smiling faces, thank you all for showing up, and uh, thank all the people who are going to watch this and listen to it and hopefully learn something from the questions of others. Thank you, too.